Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee and or occasionally wine and talking about anything and everything. We may use explicit language and we will almost certainly drop F-bombs, but none of that is the point or drive of the content, so consider us PG-13. There will be rants and raves and occasional readings. There will be conflicting creative advice driven by at least three utterly disparate points of view. Your hosts tonight are Jeannie Warner and me, John Schmidt. This is episode 14, Those Trixie Muses. We got a letter. We got a letter. We got a letter. This is very exciting for me. Um, Squishy reached out to us and wrote... Hello, lovelies. I'm behind on episodes, which I plan to rectify momentarily. But I'm interested in hearing about muses. (sighs) We're in trouble. If you talked about it already, my bad. Do any of you have a muse? What form, person, object, memory does your muse take? Do your muses come and go? What are the benefits, drawbacks of a muse? I gotta say, I find them all a bunch of bitches and whores. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think we should expand on that, but I think that is a great set of questions initially. It is. It is. Um, do you have a muse? I, I don't no. know that I believe in a muse. I have a bunch of muses. If you look at, there were there were nine muses. There was good old Cleo, which I named my cat after the muse of history. The muse of history. Uh, Mel Nipponi, Terpsichore, yeah. dance, poetry. The Greeks really had it going, but yeah. even just for my writing, there's five, six, twelve muses. Yeah. I, but the big thing is, I don't rely on muses, I rely on discipline. I sit down to write, and sometimes I succeed, and sometimes I'm blocked. Or, And I'm going to include, since I just uh, was in a dance thing, choreograph. There's a similar creative process there, but really the need to get it done and having a process to do it means that you're not waiting for someone who wants a drink and a cigarette before she helps you yeah. to do anything. On the flip side, sometimes I just sit down with poetry, ask a muse to help, and let it flow out of my brain and pen. I could see that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. I think there is no muse quite so romantic as a deadline. And... and Deadlines are beautiful, and I don't just watch them go whooshing by. I actually tend to hit my deadlines. So I, I agree with you that the greatest muse is discipline, but I think maybe we need to peel back and say, what is the kernel of an idea? Like, I, I admit that I have a lot of stories that I've written because I woke up and I have these weird dreams, and I'm like, oh my God, I have to tell Joe, Joe, wake up, I had this dream. <laughs> I had, I had another friend, Stacia, who, who I was apparently in a hotel room with her, and we were on our way somewhere, and I forget. And I woke up and looked and said, robots. <laughs> Something about their, their programming was, was faulty, and that was when she realized that I was dreaming when I was explaining how the programming was completely wrong, and I wasn't technically awake yet. And it's a pity she didn't record that for you. I probably think it's just as well. Ah, um, fever dreams. You, fever you ever dreams. run a? Have you ever run a fever and then you have the wildest, wackiest dreams ever? My, well, f- my fever dreams repeat. 
I, my, I know it's a fever dream. Yeah. There's three hallmarks, which I'm not going to go into here. but Make three up. Or we'll pretend they're yours. Uh, floating pillows. Okay. The lamp is emitting a gas that's suffocating me. Okay. Often the pillows end up being thrown at the lamp. And the third dream often is that for some reason I'm in Florida, which I take as a direct result of being hot and uncomfortable because that's what Florida is for me. I, that, I've been to Florida. Florida is a miserable place. <laughs> Sorry, Florida. But, yeah. But coming back from those muses um, to the point, sometimes I do invite a muse in and sometimes a muse takes over and I, I let the ride go. And you, you can summon a muse in some ways. I have just actually spent two weeks in the desert at that thing in the desert, or as others would call it, Birmingham. There are many titles for it. And what happens out there is that did you deliberately say burning Birmingham, not Burning Man? I did. Okay. I did. Birmingham. No, I said Birmingham. I know, but I'm going to pretend Chaz is right here, and I would say Birmingham. Because that's a different place than what I was talking about. That's right. Now, let's rant on about that, but I stole that from a very wise woman. Um, you simplify your life there, and other things are louder. And my muses were louder there, and they shouted at me. Nice. Uh, what do you have to say? Well, they said, take better care of yourself. Good muse. And they said, list out what you're going to do and stop freaking about it. And they said, get back to work on that novel. I like all of those things. Uh, and based on advice on process you had given me earlier, the book 2000 to 10,000, I forget the author's name, I'm afraid. I'll, I'll look it up and send it for you guys. I really enjoyed many of the pieces um, of it. How to get from writing 2,000 words to 10,000 words. words. Show off. But. Well, she, she really did the hard homework and data collection and number crunching to figure out how it works, but she also expounds, and we're going to go back to muses now. If you look at your writing process, which very few people do, it's easier to fix things in the idea stage than in the final galley. And so she encourages you to put structure in to your idea stage. Yeah. Have a scene list. Not a chapter list, but a scene list. Have all your characters, when you come up with them, sketch them out so that you can go to one place and look and see what each character is or does. Oh my God, that's describing exactly what Raymond told us about Scrivener and how he uses it. Exactly. Well, oh, and then he'll be so smug. Carol Wolf, who wrote a great book on how to write a play, notes that you have to do this for your actors because a play is telling actors to tell your story. And she says you need to take a cut, a cut at each character minimally so that the actor can see and the cut is a characteristic of the character that informs all of their things. Because it's easy to say, I shot him. Well, are you a policeman? In which case you're testifying in court, I shot him. Or are you the criminal who shot the policeman? I shot him. You know, the, the that aspect of character. Um, so going all the way back to the muse, her version of the muse is, because what does a muse do? A muse gets you to write. Yeah. A muse might give you a an idea. A muse is an idea. Uh, um, a muse helps you generate an idea or generate the words. And from 2000 to 10,000, she says, if you're stuck where you are, go back one step in the process and fix it there. Right. 
Uh, if it's a scene that you're having trouble writing, go back and look at your scenes and your characters and say, is this the scene that needs to be written? And we hear it from authors all the time. I, well, I had it. I had a really hard time in, in my second Bluebird book. I needed to shoot my intern, but the problem is I really liked the kid. So I unexpectedly discovered that I had an emotional problem with just shooting him. And I'm sure that George R. R. Martin somewhere would say, oh, my sweet summer child, but... Oh, my sweet summer child. Yeah, but in How the end, you... I, I got through it. I, I, I really seriously had to sit down and power through it. But and but how? Tell me, how did you just decide that the kid needed to be shot? Well, there needed to be a reason that my character, who was being very good about I will not randomly go kill people, um, then decided that it was okay to go kill people. And how we did this is I had to take one of the few things that she cared about and make it personal. Because when you, your boss tells you you're not allowed to go kill people, you generally shouldn't go kill people. This is very complicated because I haven't, you know, produced the book yet and someday I'm going to sell it. But but what you did was you went back. You, I went back. You, I said, you okay. didn't force yourself to say, okay, we'll just hold a gun to his head and shoot him. You went back and found out why. Do you know what I did also is I wrote the scene where... The kid in the hospital is about to get airlifted. I wrote his scene with her and her saying, I'm going to avenge you. And him saying, I, I discovering that I'm actually okay with that. And I'm not sure what that makes me. But it was the, I needed to him to afterwards kind of give her tacitly permission to go finish the book for me to be able to okay and write that scene in the first place. So it's like, that's a hard scene. Let me write the next bit. So I snuck around and did, I find endings much easier than beginnings sometimes. So, But hmm. I had a muse too in, in the whole Bluebird series. Originally, Bluebird was just a short story. I remember. Yeah. And I, I sent it to my group and they're like, I, I feel like there's more here. And then there was this big complicated summer liaison that came and went. And the, the jerk turned out to be a guy in my story. So I used him shamelessly and was able to just keep writing and discover that there was a deeper story. And actually, it was kind of a thriller novel. And mm -hmm. apparently, we have to find out a little bit of who's behind it all. We're not quite sure. And Which, yeah. so uh, he technically nice. was a dark and bitter muse for me. <laughs> but there's another muse at work here, a very strong muse, and that is this group of readers and friends who helped you with the book, your yeah. writing group. Oh, God bless the flying cars. God it's, bless the flying cars. Especially you, Kit. We love you. Yay, Kit. Got to get her back here. But, uh, yeah, so the muse in that was one person changed a story that was a short story and turned it into a novel. And since then, it actually has become much harder for me to write short stories because my ideas got bigger. And so... But I go back and I was looking at, at another thing that when a friend said, hey, write me a poem, because I used to say, hey, do you want me to write you a love letter? Let me know. I will write you a love letter. I'm feeling romantic. And friends of mine would say, write me a love letter. And I would write them romantic love letters. But he wanted a poem or she wanted a poem. Well, he actually, uh, there's a uh, David Korup, uh, oh, David Korup in the SCA. He's the drummer. Amazing drummer. Oh, my God, this is the man who single-handedly, I think, went out to Pensick and said, all the drumming here sucks, and spent decades teaching how to drum. I learned from him. He was a drumline instructor, so yay, DCI. Yay, DCI. But there is What's a method for how to get a group of people to all drum together. You can see John's now quietly drumming, you know, to himself. 
But he said, can you write me a poem? And what kind of poem? And he said, well, I really love the poem, and I've seen him perform it on his drum, uh, A Pretty How Town. And mm-hmm. in a minute, I'll remember who wrote it, probably a minute too late. But he said, uh, I, in that generally idea, can, can you write me something like that? And I said, of course I can, because I'd seen him perform A Pretty How Town, which is, oh my God, magnificent, because he combines drum and the poetry. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down and I wrote something called The Street Busker. And because I love you all, I'm going to have John read it because his voice is great for this kind of thing. The Street Busker by Jeannie Warner. The busker's on his corner again through snow and sunlight, wind and rain, toes tapping, bobbing head, sending out his merry thread. Children stop and tug at hands, wise fools, hairs apparent. Dreaming dreams become transparent, little dancers, little fans. Bricks hum and sidewalks stutter with the snatches that he mutters, sing-song blues and smoky rhymes, troubled feelings, troubled times. Coins clinking in the hat, thank you, ma'am, and how's that? Sure, I'll play it, it's my fave, they'll mark it down upon my grave. He sings his own when no one's there, the ones he wrote for golden hair or dark or red in summer's light, songs of love, songs of flight. Fingers aching, eyesight blurring, years have passed, that same old coat, the same old kind of scratchy throat, only traffic changes whirring by. The busker left his corner today, or never came, or or cannot stay, the pigeons lost for their next meal, no notes to play, no time to steal. Thank you. See, you make it sound better than me. I love how you wrote that. And there is actually, that is a great poem because I would love to hear. Uh, I want to hear him drumming as he I does wanna, it. Yes, I know. exactly. <laughs> I want a drummer performer to do that. Maybe maybe we'll get David. I'm going to reach out and say, will you perform it with a little bit of a beat in between? And so we'll, we'll play it for you guys because I wrote it for a drummer. A very, very good drummer. Please, yeah. David. It would be wonderful. And, and and the sad thing is when I posted it, I had a whole bunch of people saying, oh, my God, what happened to David? I'm like, it's not an epitaph. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. So, so, that's, so in your case, this particular muse is another musician. Yeah. Who asked you. And a lot of my poetry is quick musings on friends who ask, hey, can you write me a poem? Yeah. And I, uh, generally I will. Absolutely. Well, I've, for this, um, I'm writing a, my very first ever screenplay. And believe me, I'm going out and writing all of the, how do you write a screenplay? What does it look like? What do you, how do you tell a story differently? And I'm not the world's most visual person. You are not. But I had written a synopsis of a story. And now I am going out and saying for my friend that said, hey, I want to make a horror movie. Uh, That I found inspiration. And there we were. Maybe sitting around in a thunderstorm and feet water up over our ankles, sipping mm-hmm. something warming. And he's like, yeah, horror movies are affordable and uh, they generally are easy to make, easy to shoot, and people like them. So your muse in this case is someone who can turn your dream into a reality. Yeah, he's the same one. He took my uh, short story and turned it into Not the End of the World, which you can't actually see on Amazon, but you can find it on Amazon as a... Short movie. He took it around to do some movie festivals. and Excellent. And he's had some others. Jordan Heron, he's done very well. Um, I love the movie work. And I, 
So when he said, I want to do this, it took fire. I'm like, really? I've never written a screenplay. What a delightful challenge. Do you like this story? And I told him this story that I woke up singing the song, My Grandfather's Clock. Mm. And I said, you know, tall for the shelf. And I think we played it. Everybody plays it in middle school band somewhere. Yeah. My grandfather's clock was too tall for, for the, the shelf, shelf, so it stood it. 90 years, years on the, the floor. floor. And, yeah. and there's a little cuckoo, cuckoo sound in, mm-hmm. in the band version of it. And I woke up with that creepy playing in an old calliope music in my brain, and I thought it was the creepiest thing ever. <laughs> so I started, I wrote a synopsis of a story, just saying, I don't know where this is going, let me write it down. And I told it to Jordan, he's like, I'll make a movie out of that. So there you go. I'm writing a My Grandfather's Clock horror movie. I will try to get uh, the most excellent playwright. I don't have an excellent screenwriter in my pocket, I know, to uh-uh. come and talk here. Excellent. Yeah. I guess that would be great. It, it has turned out it's entirely different than writing short stories. It's You're writing only conversation and a tiny bit of stage direction and a little bit of scene setting, but conversation carries everything. So I went out to look at movies and musicals like mm-hmm. there's a site you can find all of the scripts to all of your favorite movies and it's got them online so i was looking at sweet charity mm-hmm. and it made me realize how much is carried by the actors and actresses taking just words and making them everything. words 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 it's yeah. all we have and you have shakespeare was divine and all you have to do is not be terrible, and you can come up with something decently halfway Shakespearean. And then you got Kenneth Branagh, who then came up and made it poetry in a good way. Well, and others before Branagh. But I, I think halfway decent, I think your bar, I think you underestimate your skills. It takes a lot more to be decent. Mm. There's a lot of bad writing out there. Well, Maybe. I, I've we used to have bad mus- movie Thursdays, and I still have a copy of Strippers versus Werewolves that I have not yet watched. Faithfully waiting for you bad movie it Thursday, yet. not yet, not we yet. We have to watch that, right? I mean, for anybody who loves bad movies, there's you know Cannibal Women on the Moon and Amazon Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. You're opening my eyes. Adrian Barbeau in Bunny Furs, if you imagine that I think the, I want to close my eyes again. the Mojave Desert is secretly a wild avocado jungle and somehow the U.S. military can't do anything about it. These are deep, deep movie plots here. Adrian Barbeau in a Bunny Fur Bikini, I think that's a muse I've never had. Well, she could be there for you. She could. Thank you, Adrian. What was the movie, uh, what's her name, Raquel Welch in a Bunny Fur in... Uh, 3000 BC or whatever. 3000 I don't time, remember the land, name. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Not Land of the Lost. I don't know. I, th- I think right now my, uh, I'm waiting for a remake of the Addams Family, a live action remake after the last one. Oh, the I dress, did love those. The dress. And also, of course, all the other characters. Yeah, and so. The Mamushka. The Mamushka. I want a Mamushka party. Of brotherly love. I totally want to throw a Mamushka party. Okay. But yeah, so. so those are, there's a lot of places that they can be. I mean, I don't... I love Shakespeare in Love where he says, my muse is always Aphrodite, you know. But I don't write things to the goddess of love. You kind of do. Sometimes, although I'm more... Hmm, not Eros, not Cupid. I'm more writing to Diana, the more, a more chaste love in most cases. Hmm. But that's, and that's an excellent point that you've just made. 
there are a thousand muses of love. Yeah. If it's, even just in Greek culture, you can find so many. Even Bacchus, in his own way, is a muse. Well, that's not... Well, some would call it love. Yeah. And some would call it tearing people into meaty shreds. But that's another the thing. Manids, the Maenids. You know, let's Ivo, let's Ivo, have Ivo. a wild raging party and tear everyone. Yeah. Maybe after Me Too, we need a little Maenid action. I don't know. So I don't know if, I mean, Shakespeare and Love got us the idea that, that there can be one muse and you'll have and you'll write everything, you know, she will be my heroine for all time and her name will be Viola. But I, I don't know if that's real for most people. I mean, there's just too much practicality out there. Like, I'm, I'm getting involved in writing our first game designs, me and the Web Spider. And so mm -hmm. we are writing... And they said, somebody else came and said, well, we have this idea. We want you to write it, which is kind of almost antithetical because if somebody said, hey, I have this novel idea, will you write it? The answer is no, go write your own damn novel. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure you can write somebody else's novel or somebody else's idea, but when you're, this is the writing, technical writing combined with creative, combined with somebody wants an outcome. So... Is that a muse? Is it an inspiration? Or is it a deadline? <laughs> but is a deadline a muse? A deadline is a muse to you, even without the whooshing noises. And process is a muse to me. Well, it's sort of like when they first said, okay, I want you to write a haiku, and it has to have a season, mm -hmm. and it has to have weather. What was the other thing? Haiku purists are going like, to yell at the thing but I don't remember there was like three things that every haiku is supposed to have which is impressive in such a limited number of I always thought it had to have an emotion built in you know it's like autumn storms the lightning flashes the pine tree is no longer on the hill or something it paraphrased from mangled somewhere. from another source but yeah but the, yeah the it's narrow the, road to the deep north uh, the parties um, but that's the limitations of the form inspiring you to do better yeah, but kind of like a trio that rhyme screen rhyme scheme forces you to be more creative in your word choices internally because well, you you have got that repeating rhyme any rhyme scheme but I I'm hanging on trio that because I need to write one. Yeah, I'd I'd written a story. Um, it started off because somebody said, "Hey, there's this anthology for uh, rock and roll. You really? know, something based on." year went by, I think Steve Berman or something, friends of Chaz and mm -hmm. Karen's, and they did not like My Rising Sun, tragically. Mm. But when I went back and read it the second time, I realized that it was a different sort of story with a different sort of point. For instance, it's captain of a ship, which I relate to, mm -hmm. but it does not matter the gender of the captain, and it doesn't really matter the gender of most of the crew. But it was interesting when the writing group read it aloud to find the different perceptions of gender that each of them assigned to each of the... It's like, so do you think the captor's a girl or a boy? And they're like, oh, female, female, male. And one said, well, only one person noticed. You didn't actually ever say. Mm. And the point is, does it matter? Does every story have to be nailed down to, you know, a, a gender, a binary, a preference? Uh, yeah, does every story have to be nailed down to a color? Because, I mean, haven't we all looked at something really beautiful or somebody really beautiful and said, wow, that's exquisite, and I am not at all interested in it. And 
So just because I may like one thing or another does not necessarily mean that it's going to move me, but it does not assign anything to me by liking it or not liking it either. So I'm, I'm going to loop that back to our muse and say that what that says to me is that your muses are not my muses. Yeah. But they can be beautiful muses all the same. Hmm. Well, here's the question of they, the muses were, you know, daughters, but what if it was air quote daughters? Would it make a difference in the world if the muses were all men? In different cultures, they are men. Are they? Yeah, sometimes. I'm going to look that up for everybody online to find out if the different, what the different muses I'm going to have to defend be. that online. We should come back to it. Okay. Speaking of coming yeah. back to, can we go back to the question that were written to you and make sure we've covered them? Absolutely. It's uh, what what form does the muse take? Um, person, object, memory. I, I got to say, I am not an object person. Are you an object person? No. Yeah. No. Um, I, uh, I have used talismans and tokens before. At one point in my life, I wrote a whole bunch of really funny poetry in the voices of three stuffed animals. And I would line the three stuffed animals up and make them talk to each other as part of the poem. But right. I didn't need to have the animals to do it. It was just fun to do. Um, and an idea is not a muse to me. Muses allow me, give me ideas, allow me to have ideas. But uh, an, uh, an idea may inspire me to work on it or may inspire me to avoid it completely but a muse is... Well, it's not really one, one muse, one project, one hour either, because you can have a lot of projects open at any given time. Like, I, I have at least three other dreams that I've written, you know, a couple 10,000 words in here or there saying, it's here for me whenever I want it, when I have time, when I'm giving up on this current scheme and going back to another one. But I've found that, like, my muse for this story is... Every time I go back and read more of history of what was going on in the world in 1901, how is that not its own inspiration? So Cleo, the, my muse of history is, and in you writing a book Cleo too. Cleo is a powerful muse. Yeah, it's especially like, when Cleo pulls aside the curtain and reveals a truth that others have obscured. Yes, um, <laughs> like wait, it wasn't really like that. And, and how was it really like? How and, was it really like? And what does that mean? Oh, like God. Cleo. Your Cleo, Cleo is your muse for the book you're now writing, your first One book. One of them, yes. Yeah, yeah. so the, the Western, as it really was, not quite as whitewashed closer to by as Hollywood. It really was. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because we have all these movies of the man in the West, but the man in the West was often a boy, often Negro or Mexican. Um, there's economic factors there, and sometimes the man in the West was a woman. Yeah. And these all fit in. There's a matter of fact, a couple cases provable where the man in the West may have been dressed as a woman. But it wasn't a big deal, except for it all got whitewashed away in the in in a character building phase. Anyway, um yeah. so well, for those who don't know, I'm sometimes a teacher and when I go out and teach a group of people and they can't relate to a myth because they've been removed from it, why not rewrite the myth close to reality? So well, Mulan was supposed to be a big deal. We all saw Disney's Mulan, and they've made another movie about it, which I'll, I'll find the link and put up there, too, of more like how it really happened. But it got me going back and diving into Chinese history, you know, the warring, warring nations time, and then the romance of the three kingdoms and the, the unification. And 
And it was interesting watching the creeping spread of the patriarchy, as it were, through mm -hmm. each of these different ones saying, ah, first it was taxes, because there was a time where men and women were all taxed. And then suddenly only men were taxed, but part of their tax involved something that women tended to do, which was traditionally weaving and, I mean, spinning, weaving, dyeing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you could be a single man, John, but you would kind of have to have women somewhere in your life because you also had to produce a certain number of bolts of fabric for the empire. Mm -hmm. And was sort of interesting for me of like, how did women get, it's like, well, we don't want to tax you and well, there's women's roles. And yet there are still stories of women doing extraordinary things. There was one whose name I've forgotten, but I will look up again that she commanded troops and she rode in the field and it was not Miss Mulan, but it was somebody else. She defended towns against in this, mm -hmm. in this warring nations, every, you know, miserable time of constant warfare and struggle and fighting and she was so good at it that when she died, they declared that she was honorable ancestor and a named one that you officially pray to because mm -hmm. she was just that big. And that's what you did is you just had to live bigger than life. So, yes, there were roles, and yet there have always been people that have rejected those roles and done their own way, but you don't hear much about it. And they're fascinating people, yeah. like Big Alma. Tell me about Big Alma. Uh, in, a, in a heartbeat, she's the one who put together the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. She was an artist model. She was six feet tall. She sued her first suitor for deflowering her without providing her marriage, won the suit. Nice. And uh, the Spreckles heir, she invented the term sugar daddy. Really? <laughs> because uh, while she was posing, a man happened to see her who was an heir to the Speckles sugar fortune, and he decided he must have her, and he became her sugar daddy. Huh. And uh, long and complicated life we're looking up, but it's funny because she did this in a period where theoretically women didn't have that kind of power. So, and then as you look deeper into the stories, they get even more interesting. Yeah. But invention of sugar daddy is worth noticing on its own, because he was an actual sugar daddy, but a six foot tall nude model becoming uh, the woman who pulled together. And she went to France and met a sculptor and brought back 10 of his sculptures. And that is the basis for the fact that there's a lot of Rodin at <laughs> Stanford. The, no, no, no. Stanford's a different couple at um, the Legion d'Honneur in San Francisco. Awesome. The thinker in the courtyard she brought back from France from the sculptor. Wow. I was, uh, Denise uh, Tanaka in our writers group was is writing a story of another famous artist that came over from Japan in the 20s. His name was Tama Tanaka and he married an American woman. And this was an, it was an interesting time for American mm -hmm. because a woman, if she married a foreigner, she lost her citizenship. Oh, I didn't know that. I, oh, yeah, because women aren't really were not really many different things at the time. And, and there's too much of a soapbox, so I will, I will invite Denise to come talk about it sometime. That but would be she, lovely. But she related to it because she also married a Japanese-American mm -hmm. and settled down And twenty in the 1920s. They had to go state after state until they found a judge even willing to marry them mm. because that's, that's a foreigner. Mm. And can, can I rant for a second? Please. I know it's a soapbox, but it's a soapbox we're standing on. Um, let us illuminate with Cleo's gentle light, the stupidity of recent past and keep moving forward with it. Yeah. So I understand you're, you're being sensitive to uh, 
people, but yeah, it, if we know these mistakes, we can avoid them. And I, I will never forget my mother's trouble at getting a credit card in the early 70s because... Yeah. Because had, women in the 70s did not have the right to have a credit card on their own name. Exactly. And that is something we cannot forget. I, I bring so it up basic. to the kids all yeah. the time, to my nieces and nephews, reminding them that uh, there are men that are in Congress now that were alive and happy at a time where women were definitely third-class citizens. Yes. Well... Anyway, you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, which is a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the host. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you to be able to buy cool WDC swag. Check them out on Facebook, J-A-K-K-A-L Designs.